Welcome to another exciting episode of Get Vertical. I'm thrilled to have David Fox, a dynamic entrepreneur and CMO advisor, joining us today. David's an expert in driving growth and representing his clients' best interests with unmatched dedication. He's found ways to grow when the economy turns down. He loves it when the economy turns down. One of the things and one of his secret weapons in that is a challenge that he faced as a youth um, that ended up being diagnosed later in life that has helped him be able to adapt and overcome a variety of tough, tough situations. Sit back, get your volume right. You're going to love this story. I'm excited to have this conversation with David. Let's go. Let's get vertical with David Fox. It is really only just recently. Literally, I, I met with my business coach the other day um, and I said, you know, Jerry, this is my business coach. I said, I think I'm ready to share my real story with the world. And, and it's really nothing I've done before. I mean, I've spent most of my life kind of hiding and masking and covering to fit in with um, the universe. And so you, Mike, will be the first person to ever hear the real story. But, you know, as, as, Jerry, as Jerry put it, he said, I feel like all the power in what you've done begins with your journey. And, and yet I think it's so hard for people to be vulnerable. You know, we, we live in a world where, you know, we are expected to fit and we're expected to be, you know, these, these sort of mighty super beings. Um, but I, I don't think that really serves any of us very well. So um, I'll, I'll talk for a few minutes and then if you have questions, let me know. It doesn't need to be a monologue. Um, and, and we can talk about X and then Y, kind of the two dovetail in. The first time I remember having a panic attack, I was six years old. Um, I was standing on the playground of a, a preschool that my mother had put me in and there were children everywhere and yelling and screaming and all of a sudden I couldn't breathe and everything started to go black and and I just remember falling onto the ground and a teacher came over and she said are you okay um, later this was diagnosed as uh, at first general generalized anxiety disorder then um, social anxiety disorder, um, subsequently diagnoses of things like ADHD. And it wasn't well into adulthood that I was actually diagnosed with a rare genetic condition that kind of causes all of this that's tied into chromosomes. It's a chromosomal thing. Um, but I was a terminally shy kid, terminally shy. The kid that sat at the back of the room, homeschooled part of the time, went to school part of the time, didn't talk to anyone, didn't go to prom, didn't go to homecoming, never went on a date in high school, never talked to a girl. Uh, my friends never went to a football game. Um, too, too shy. I think my parents thought that, that maybe I would wind up living in their basement. They, they mentioned that several times. <laughs> and, and, at, and at some point, I realized that I didn't want to be the 40-year-old virgin. And so I, I hatched a plan in my mind to kind of, quote, come out of my shell. Um, so I, I wound up talking the owner of a local clothing store into hiring me. I mean, I, I, I think they just had no other options. <laughs> um, and, and I was horrible at it. You know, on day one, I was terrible at selling clothing. I've always liked clothing, but I was terrible at selling clothing. So I started to buy books on sales, especially retail sales. And I would read the book and then I would test what the book said. And some things worked and some things didn't. And, and I slowly started to develop a process for, for selling retail clothing. And, and I got to the point where, you know, I could really almost step out of my shy, painfully shy body and, and into this role, into this process. Um, and about seven months in, the owner came to me and he said, hey, um, I just wanted to let you know you're the number one salesperson in our store. Out of 30 people, you're number one. Seven months in. By, by the end of the first year, I was number one in the company. They had seven stores across two states. I was the top salesperson in the company. At the end of my first year, the owner said, hey, we've been in business 25 years, and you just broke our all-time record for sales. What? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and the thing is, to me, it's not, I don't believe that selling is a personality. I believe that selling is a process. 
that can be taught, it can be repeated, it can be learned, and such is the case with marketing. Um, and you know, as I got into college, I started to create processes around everything I did. I went from the guy who had never been on a date to developing a process for asking girls out. I think I took you know twenty girls out on exactly the same date. Um, and, and it was kind of dorky, but, you know, I started writing down all of these things and, and, you know, I'll tell you, it was never really my intent to share any of this with the world because I didn't think there was anything special about it. For me, it was just what I had to do to kind of work around life. But then, um, as I started comparing notes, you know, really literally in COVID with other professionals that do what I do, um, they were like, damn, dude, um, like, how do I how do I get the results you get? I'm like, I, I don't know, follow the process. <laughs> um, and so everything in my life kind of became about creating processes and then following and implementing those processes and and testing and, you know, seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. Uh, and data and, 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 and really kind of turning everything into an experiment. Um, and, and I think the, the older you get, the more that you are able to kind of pivot quickly. Um, so, you know, well into adulthood, I was um, diagnosed with a very rare form of a condition called Klinefelter syndrome, which means you have an extra X chromosome and it's a spectrum disorder and, and as a result, everybody kind of gets a, a different set of cards. Um, and, and I was lucky in some ways because, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, I was, was able to think about life kind of as a series of processes. And, 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 you know, the thing that's tough about kids that have this condition is a lot of them just don't fit into the world. And many of them are very smart, they're very bright, but they just don't fit into the world. Um, but I'm, I'm now on the national board of directors for the, for genetic.org that serves this, this condition, um, and have helped multiple people find success through self-employment. They, they find that they can't quite make the world work for them, but start a business, implement a process. And all of a sudden they're making more money than their parents. And the parents are like, wait a minute, you were supposed to live in my basement. <laughs> now I'm living in yours. <laughs> exactly. Now the kid has an e-commerce store that's doing a million bucks a year in sales. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that, that um, the world has been, it's, it's been very unique for me. My, my experience as a human being has very, been very unique. And sometimes I struggle a little to connect with average, kind of normal, average American people. Um, you know, because everything has always been, okay, here's this big hurdle. Um, how do we overcome it? How can we build a process that is simple and easy and repeatable that we can utilize to overcome this life challenge, whether it's dating or, you know, um, building a business or, uh, you know, leave, leaving the house, going to the grocery store, yeah, <laughs> you know, wh wh whatever it is. Well, and it's, so. it's amazing, right? First off, thank you. Um, I'm honored to be able to hear this, hear this. And um, I just want to say thank you for sharing that and, and the courage to share that story, because to your point, I believe that, you know, it's 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 one of those things that that people will kid about sometimes, which is everybody's special. Right. <laughs> you know, but we are all unique. and We all have different challenges and it's just but we all also have a story. And what I what I love about what you're telling right now is you didn't once you recognize the challenge that you had you had the courage to face it, right? And then say, okay, where I'm at is not where I want to be. And what do I have to do to get past it, right? And then and then the courage to face the potential failures, the mistakes, right? What I like to call the skinned knees or the bruised elbows, right? Along the way and, and develop that to where, to your point, as you mature, the ability to pivot becomes it's it's not this rare thing it is it's something that is a learned skill and and it's also a recognition you you all of a sudden have this ability you've got these sensors out where you're like oh wait it's time to pivot no right and and somebody 
somebody else that doesn't have those experiences or know they, they may not recognize those signs. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and the thing that I, I would like to share is that um, my life has certainly not been all successes. In fact, it's been a series of, of catastrophic failures, failures with people, failures with employers. Um, it's what drove me to self-employment because I learned that in a job, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't create a process fast enough to, you know, deal with all the, all the politics and all the, all the, there, there, there wasn't enough time. Um, and I remember when I was really going through the toughest part of my life, which was probably from my early to late twenties, um, I was living in Denver and I had this big mirror in my bathroom and I had found a quote in Esquire magazine from a guy named Sumner Redstone, who was born in a Boston slum, became a self-made billionaire, CEO of Viacom. Um, and it said, success is not built on success. It's built on uh, failure, frustration, sometimes even catastrophe. And I had that, uh, that written scrawled on a the, and the packing tape up to my mirror so that every day when I would come home, basically destroyed from the day, just destroyed, I would look at that sign and I would say, you know what, it's part of the journey. It's, it's part of the process. And everyone was telling me, you're nuts. You're crazy. You're nuts. <laughs> Go get a job at the post office. Do the right thing. <laughs> but I kept looking, you know, and Sumner Redstone is, is dead now. But I always wished I could just say thank you. Thank you for sharing that piece of wisdom, you know, because it sort of saved me. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's powerful. Winston Churchill has a similar quote, which is, you know, Success is the ability to go from failure to failure without a loss of enthasm. <laughs> that's another. That, that could have been on the yeah, other yeah, side. Well, it's, it's one that I've got actually. I've got a. I've got a block right because it, it's something. Resilience is something that has to be taught, and it has to be. It's. We've got kids, so my wife and I. We've got five kids, and one of the things that we want to teach them is, is the notion of how to fail well, right? It's no, not to accept failure, right? And, and not to stay there, but it's, you're going to fail. You know, Mario Andretti said, you know, the only way you find the edge is to go past it, right? And which means you're gonna wreck a car, right? In, in his world, right? And it's like, you've gotta know where that edge is. And so it's the question is when, when you fail, what are you gonna do about it? And David, I, I just, again, I want to applaud you and say thank you for sharing this. And um, I also want to continue to encourage you because when you talk about it going from a series of catastrophes, right? And it's, it's, it's being able to, to get up the next day, right? And face that day. Um, John Gordon talks about, you know, the power of positivity Right. And it's it's just being able to look at hard times and hard things and do so with a positive outlook on it. And it sounds it sounds like you've been able to you had to develop that skill early in life. And um, and then you've had to develop it again and again along the way. You know, I would say that I, I developed it well into my 20s my my parents were were both bright perfectionists my dad has a, a phd from stanford my mom um is what is a is a child psychologist turned real estate investor um they were both very bright very perfectionistic and any failure was considered catastrophe and so not only did i have to deal with the catastrophe of the world but i kind of had to deal with the the constant disappointment of my parents who just didn't understand why, unlike my brother, I couldn't, you know, get a perfect score on the SAT or, you know, I didn't get a, a full ride to, you know, a prestigious college, why everything was so much more difficult for me than other people. And so for a long time, it was just kind of getting beaten up by life and beaten up and beaten up and beaten up and, um, you know, and, and, and feeling like, you know, other people were on a path and I was sort of over in the woods somewhere. Um, but, you know, slowly, 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 it all kind of came into focus. Now, I remember I was going to a shrink for a while um, and he, he had a, 
with a little block like you do on, on his desk from, from the movie Rocky. And it said something like, it's not how many times you get hit, but how many times you get up. And, and I always, and I kind of started to embody that. I thought, you know what, if I just get hit, keep getting hit and I just keep falling and falling and falling and falling, at least by the time I get to the end of my life, I can say I did my best. You know, I mean, maybe I never succeeded. But you have. <laughs> but at least, right? at least I tried. Well, yeah, and that was during that time, during that really difficult time. And that's, I think that's the funny thing is, is you develop that combination of resilience and process. And then one day you kind of wake up and you're, you're actually a lot mightier than other people. You know, the punches don't even affect you. The, 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 the punches that destroy people's lives, you just kind of go, eh, you know, day in the life, whatever, you know, move on. And, and I think especially in entrepreneurism, that makes you incredibly powerful because you get hit a lot. And people that, that are not resilient die. And people that are highly resilient, they just kind of go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> there's, there's a movie that came out, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now called The Ultimate Gift. Um, and it's this story. It's, it's, it's a great story. I don't know how well done it is. It's probably a good way to put it. But uh, it's the story of this, uh, you know, trust fund kid and his grandfather who built the, the, the family fortune and stuff leaves him the quote unquote ultimate gift. And he's got to go through and do these different tests in order to essentially get whatever the gift is. Right. But his, the gift for him was essentially to learn how to live life. And he had to learn how to fail and he had to learn how to lose everything. Right. So like one step of it is the grandfather makes it or posthumously, right, has the attorneys take everything, take the house away, take all of this, take all the credit cards, he has no line of credit. He's homeless all of a sudden. He's like, now you're going to find out who your friends are, right? He's like, you think you've got friends, but most of them are just hanging on, right? And then he's like, you're going to find out who your friends are. And he said, you really haven't lived until you've lost everything. And, and when you've lost everything, and he said, Sometimes you've got to do it two or three times. Now, I, I strongly, I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not endorsing that for people by any stretch of the imagination, but, but to your point, it's that ability to, to have resilience. And I, I grew up in a highly entrepreneurial family and I remember us having very good years and then having times where we were eating cereal for dinner for, you know, a month at a time and whatnot. And it's that the ability to have that resilience as you go through it and um, develop those skills of, and develop that muscle of getting up the next morning and doing it with a good attitude and a heart of gratefulness. Right. Um, so, yeah, I thank you again. And so tell us a little bit, it, you took us through your twenties, right. And then um, at some point you started a firm. Yeah, you know, I, I had some good fortune. I, I wound up um, out of college going into pharmaceutical sales and pharmaceutical sales. It was too fast moving and there was there was too much going on. And so after a time, I wound up leaving that and going back to working for a clothing store. But I, I got a job working for a very high end clothing store and I wound up meeting a guy who um, was was the heir. He was the sixth generation direct descendant of John Deere and his family had the John Deere money. And he had a, a multi-family office along with five or six other guys, including a couple that you would actually recognize, <laughs> kind of famous billionaires. And, um, you know, I just got to know him. I built a relationship with him through the store, um, wound up doing him a bunch of favors. And one day he asked me, um, he said, is this what you want to be doing in your life? And I said, no. And he said, what do you want to be doing? And I said, well, I'd love to work with a guy for a guy like you. And he said, you're hired. <laughs> no, no qualifications, mind you. <laughs> um, and, I, and I went to work for his multifamily office slash private equity group and watched them for the next four years buy and sell businesses, negotiate deals. Um, you know, I screened hundreds of investor proposals. I watched how, you know, venture capital and private equity level people made decisions when investing in a company or liquidating a company. And that was really my education. I mean, I went to college, I have a degree, but um, that was my education. And, and that was, you know, it was dumb luck. It was dumb luck plus um, 
you know, kind of having built a relationship. The guy was kind of kind of dressed like an old cowboy, even though he was in his 40s. And he would come into our very high end store and the salespeople would just scatter. They would just run because they thought that he was just there to use the bathroom. Um, and, and I just I just got to know him and I talked to him and, you know, had a number of conversations with him. And um, and I remember going to his house and he said, I have all these clothes that I haven't worn in years and they don't fit me. And I wound up um, doing about $10,000 worth of free alterations for him. My boss was pissed off. He was angry. He said, what are you doing? He's, this guy's a nobody. Why, why are you doing all these alterations? And I said, well, look, the guy's got a, at least a six or $7 million house. Um, maybe at least we can meet his friends. I, I don't know. I just like him. There was something about the guy. Um, the next year when I was still working for the store, um, he became the number one customer in the store and bought $250,000 worth of clothing from me. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty interesting, you know, and he just, Oh, I like to be casual. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You tell that story. I, I remember my father. So I, I grew up in the country and grew up on a farm and whatnot. And, um, my, my father would, would talk about that, right? Because he was highly entrepreneurial and we, we, he had a couple of different businesses and some did very well. And, but he also, my mom came from Texas and um, he was telling a story about, I think at a high end store, very similar to exactly what you're talking about. A guy came in out of the oil patch and, you know, oil covered dungarees, cowboy boots, the whole nine yards, and nobody would wait on him. Once one guy worked with him and set a record for the store. And what's crazy to me is I had always kind of thought of that as being an urban legend, but now I know it's true. You did it. You know, I, I actually wound up in the time I worked for that store, I had three customers like that. Um, one guy, he was a Hispanic guy. He came in and, you know, he was dressed really down. He really looked like, you know, somebody said, hey, this guy, he's on one of the yard crews. He's just looking for the bathroom. And, you know, again, you know, I just kind of, I, I believed every human being that walked through the doors of our store. I had come from Nordstrom. I believed that every human being deserved our utmost respect by, by doing us the honor of, of coming into our store. I always believed that. And so I just went and started talking to him again. He bought six figures worth of clothing. He, he wound up being the largest government contractor that re removed asbestos in the Western United States. And, and I remember delivering clothing to his, to his, uh, to his office. He had this big warehouse uh, where, where all his stuff was. And he had like, you know, McLarens and Bentleys and all of these cars lined up. He had about 30 of them. But he had come as an immigrant. Um, and then there was, a, there was a third guy, a guy, an Italian guy named Frank, who came in after working out. And he looked grubby. Again, the salespeople scattered. But, you know, between those three people, the guy from, from John Deere and the, the asbestos guy and, and Frank, the Italian guy, I sold over a million dollars worth of clothing to those three guys alone. And it was only because I was willing to talk to um, the people that, that didn't look wealthy. Um, but a lot of rich, rich people, as I've come to learn, don't look wealthy. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> the richest ones don't look wealthy. You know, it's, it's funny. I come from a... a pretty strong faith background. And, and one of the things, right, that often gets lost, right, is, and that people forget a lot, is we're reminded again and again and again that, you know, the dignity of the human being, right, and that you treat all people the same, that we're all God's children. And, and we all deserve the respect of being God's children. And um, so often, you know, there's a there's a proverb which is you know don't I'm gonna mangle it and I should know it cold that by now but you know it's it's essentially don't don't treat people according to the way they dress and the way they look right it's it's treat them all the same um and I I just I love that you're I'm inspired listening to this story so thank you you know and and, and to your point I mean I also grew up in a Christian home um you know, and it, it, and, it, and it isn't just Sunday school stuff. You know, it, it really is the way that we should engage the world. And even if the world is dirty to us, even if people are dishonest with us, you know, the way that I want to live, how, however many days I have on this planet is what you just talked about. 
And if I get burned sometimes, then so be it. I I love hearing you say that, right? Because one of the the questions was that I um, I was asked by somebody because our, our business is doing well, and they said, "Well, what do you do?" And I was like, "We overserve." And they said, "Well, how do you keep from being taken advantage of?" And I'm like, "We don't. That's that's what we do." I said, "Now, don't get me wrong. We we definitely we've got to pay the bills and stuff, but but if we overserve." And we leave anybody that we engage with, with a positive impression, it's going to work out. It's absolutely going to work out. And yeah, there's some people that are going to take advantage of us. And you know what? God bless them. Yeah, and there's going to be. Absolutely. And, and I, see that, I see it that way. If somebody takes advantage of me, then maybe they needed that resource. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. All right. So so you go from go from a clothing store, right, where you're treating you've you've learned, by the way, what a phenomenal story, right? You go from being a six year old having a panic attack and not knowing what's going on to just spending your formative years shy, ultimately shy with the courage to overcome that. And then a series of failures and catastrophes in your 20s to where you've learned these processes and capabilities. And in, 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 when you were a teenager, you went to work in the clothing store and you learned how to sell. Right. And then you you go to work at a high end clothing store and then you end up at a P.E. firm, you know, family P.E. style firm. You learn how to buy and sell businesses. And then what's next? You know, toward, towards the end, and I'll, I'll, I'll name one name, but towards the end of my, um, my time with these guys, kind of before they retired, they wound up do, doing a deal with David Rockefeller. And I remember going to New York and meeting with him and 57th floor of Rockefeller Plaza. And, and it's like you really learn. I found David Rockefeller to be an incredibly humble, decent, good person who, and I asked him what the secret to success is. And he said, well, the secret to my success, I was born in the right family. <laughs> Now, granted, he had gone to Harvard and been chairman of Chase Bank, but very humble, you know, a very, very good hearted human being. Um, but just having those experiences and getting to sort of rub shoulders with some of those people taught me a lot about abundance, uh, giving back. Um, of course, David was a huge philanthropist, um, you know, had, had a real duty. But in, in, in any event, after those guys retired and I wound up leaving that, um, you know, incidentally, if you learn how to, how, you can learn how to sell clothing. The skills to to, to meet and date girls is pretty similar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it's really having a conversation and learning to care about somebody and learn learning how to how to put somebody's needs first. I mean, that's I think that's what a good relationship is. So I had gotten married a couple of years earlier, um, and so you know, I I had at least the stability of of you know. <laughs> My, my job and my wife's income, and we were kind of in it together. Um, and, and someday I'll tell you about the strategic plan that I created to meet the perfect girl. It actually, it actually worked for it beautifully. I'll, I'll tell you okay. about that someday. Yeah. Um, follow up. But, uh, yeah, follow up. You know, follow yeah. up. We had decided to start a business, and it was about 2007. Um, I finally really decided that my path forward had to be self-employed. And I'd always loved marketing. I'd studied marketing, always loved marketing. And like we had talked about earlier, I believed that digital marketing was going to be the thing. You know, SEO, PPC, even things like email marketing, things with a really high return on investment. You know, and back in 2007, this was all pretty newfangled stuff. Crazy to think about, right? But it was. So we had started this digital agency. I had a, a business partner and he was supposed to do kind of the selling. He had come out of telecom sales. And there were, there were a handful of us. We had a couple of people on staff and, and we had gone out and we had sold, you know, a number of deals. I mean, there were amazing deals, but for a, a first time startup right out of the gate, we had some, some pretty decent um, clients, a realist, couple of real estate firms, some property management groups, uh, you know, some home services contractors, um, you know, a couple of other local businesses. And we were off to the races. Um, and then the housing crash came and within three months, we had zero clients. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and I remember the day the last client was was actually a, a large real estate brokerage. And I remember the, the day that our last client, I, I was really, I said, well, you know, I said to my partner, I said, you know, if we can just keep these guys and sign a few more people, I think ultimately we'll be okay. I remember the, the owner of that business calling me and saying, you know, I hate to tell you this, but we, we've got to, you know, we're, we're out of business, you know, um, and we've got we've to shut this down. We're just trying to stem the bleeding. And, um, and I remember looking at my partner and I said, well, I said, you know, that's it. And he said, you know, I quit, I quit my job for this. And the economy was in the tank and jobs were not plentiful. And, um, you know, so as life had taught me, I just decided to dive in and I said, okay, well, look, we're in a crappy economy, but something is working. People are still in business. People still have to eat. People still have to market. So I really started calling every contact contact I had and said, what are you spending money on? What's working? What's converting? And I, I called the guy that I had met um, who was a Serta Pro Painting franchisee. And, and he said to me, the number one thing that's working for us right now is outbound mark, not, not this inbound stuff, but he said, people out knocking on the door. He said, going to the homes and knocking on the doors. And, and he said, listen, he said, I don't know if you're interested in this, but he said, I will give you 75 bucks for every appointment you can set door to door, whether it sells or not. And I came home and I looked at my wife and I looked at my business partner and I said, you know, we don't have anything else going on. I may as well try. So I got on Craigslist and I, I, I posted an ad for door knockers and there were other unemployed people who answered my ad and, you know, as a kid with, with anxiety. And I mean, I, the idea of knocking doors scared the Jesus out of me. Um, I went out on a Saturday with two other people and we spent four hours knocking on doors. And by the time we were done, I had paid them, paid all the expenses and had 500 bucks left over from four hours. And I thought, okay, well, let's just check this out. So over the course of the next couple of months, we hired 20 people. We bought two vehicles and I signed up more painters. Um, I signed up a flooring company. I signed up a contractor, a, a, a construction company, and, and a roofing company. And we started going out and knocking on doors. And um, we went from not able to make payroll to a thriving business. And we continued knocking doors all throughout the downturn. And by the time you know, um, someone came along, uh, it was a large, large roofing company, one of the largest roofing companies now in the country. And they said, hey, you know what would be awesome? If we could just buy what you've built <laughs> and, um, and we could just absorb it and, and we could use this to, to drive the momentum of our business. That would be amazing. Would, would you consider that? And by this point, you know, I, I, we had beaten on probably over a million doors. We had, you know, um, we had, um, 200 people in an outsourced call center that were doing outbound calls. We had nearly a hundred people B2B and B2C that were knocking on doors. You know, we had about 60 B2B2C. We had a whole B2B team that was doing commercial roofing. Um, yeah, the very idea of getting rid of it was just incredible to me. <laughs> so, so we wound up exiting that accidental business and, um, and it was pretty amazing. It was a pretty amazing feeling to, um, you know, kind of come out of the pandemic with, you know, not only not a failure, but, but a big check. <laughs> wow. Um, but, you know, it was, it was tough. We had the police called on us. We had the city of Loveland, Colorado, try and prosecute us. Um, you know, they didn't succeed, but, you know, I mean, just crazy, crazy things. They didn't like door knockers. Um, you know, we, we drove all around multiple states, you know, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, you know, our people, our people, many of our people were unemployed and they'd get to winter and they say, you can't shut down because if you shut down, I have nothing to eat. And I said, well, let's go to Phoenix. Let, let's just go. What do we have to lose? You know, and this is a decision made in like 36 hours, like everything else was. <laughs> <laughs> So we wound up going with probably 30 people to Phoenix for an entire winter. And then we wound up with an office there. Um, it was crazy, but it was, it was kind of fail, pivot, fail, pivot, fail, pivot, fail, pivot, fail, pivot, 
and then somebody hands you a big check and you're like, sweet. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, and the thing that, that cracks me up in this is how, how so often folks will romanticize the notion of entrepreneurship, right? They're like, oh, you know, you've got your own business, you do your own thing. So yeah, and you also live on this incredibly precarious roller coaster, 23 Absolutely. and a half hours a day. There's a half hour Absolutely. that you're, you're it's it's awesome and exhilarating, but there's another part of it that is you're you're hanging on, right? You're white knuckling through. Absolutely, very yeah. tough. And but and I love the way that that just God prepared you though for that that stage with all of the other experiences that you had been through. Yeah, no, and it was, and I really started to figure out who I was. Um, and, and, and that experience, the experience of the thing that I loved about that business, the number one thing that I learned to love, and this is really carried through the rest of my career, was a great passion for helping other self-employed people succeed. The, the, the number one thing that I got was, was, was really being able to engage a business owner who had, had risked everything to be in business. And they said, hey, I'm, a, I'm an amazing roofer or I'm an amazing painter or I'm an amazing window siding person or solar person or whatever their situation was. If I can just get clients, if I can just get customers, then I can, I can do magic. But it's that one little part that I just can't do. And being able to come in there as the marketer and say, you know, I've got you, you know, and, and to be able to deliver opportunities for them and watch them thrive and watch them grow and watch their family thrive and watch their lives change was something that I became, you know, not only, it's not only how I earned my living, but it's kind of how I served as well. And, and that has really dictated everything I've done, the, the, the remainder of my career, every position I've taken, everything I've done has really been, I've, you know, I've worked extensively in franchising um, and, and then, and then later as a, as a CMO, but, but it's always supporting people in a self-employed role. And, and, and often people say, well, you should be in SaaS and you should be in big tech and you should be in Fortune 500. And the truth is I'm not passionate about making a Fortune 500 more money. I'm just not, you know, and, and maybe, that, maybe that doesn't bode well for me. Maybe I'd be smarter if I were working for Apple, but you know, anyway. <laughs> The fact of the matter, right, what's kind of, and I'll go back and cover this in the intro is, you know, when I look at your LinkedIn profile, you're not taking any new clients. Um, no. And in fact, I actually just brought on four uh, more fractional CMOs to help work out my backlog. And we're in the process of launching two new brands right now. Um, one brand is called Contractor CMO. And, and basically we've taken marketing for the home services industry. We've created a process. We can execute that process at an incredibly attractive price. Um, we're doing it in exclusive territories per trade so that no one compete. We're not competing. We don't have two clients that are competing against each other, but you know, basically that brand wants to take small ambitious companies and turn them into market leaders. Um, you know, but, but it honestly, it's, it's, we, we begin with clients at about three grand a month and we've got several right now that are seeing massive, massive leaps and bounds. And people are saying, oh, this economy, this economy. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? You know, we, we just got a plumber, 50 new clients, 50 and, and he's buying five new trucks and he's hiring people. And, and because it's all process based we're able to do it at a, at a price that's really, really, really attractive. And really my philosophy is you land, you build trust, you show that you can get results and then you expand the relationship. And so, you know, I expect that these relationships will, will expand as we um, have success together. But I do believe as a marketer that you kind of have to put your money where your mouth is. You can't just say, it's not good enough to say, hey, you give me your money and I'm gonna try. That doesn't work. You know, you, you've got you've got to deliver and you've got to cut through the BS and you've got to build out the groundwork and do what's truly right for the client. And I think if you do that, then you build a really, really powerful business. And people say, well, how do you have a waiting list when like no one has a waiting list? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's back to the philosophy you and I talked about kind of over serving. It, well, and it's 
it's crazy. One of the things that that we do because we we serve larger companies. Well, but but still not by and large. Our, our sweet spot's probably a hundred to five hundred million, right? Um, in terms of the revenue, but our ICP is just um, a under resourced function. That's probably the easiest way to put it, and. What we prefer to do from a pricing model perspective is we prefer to come in at a cost that just barely covers our cost, but we've got a success fee tied to the end, right? And it's just, hey, look, if we do for you what we think we can do, pay us, right? Um, but if we don't, there's you're no worse the wear for wear, right? You're you're doing okay. You're all you've done, and we're not going out of business this way, but we're not, we're certainly, you know, we're just paying our bills, right? Yeah, this way and I've done a lot of that. I firmly believe in that. Model. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I've found is, is it's interesting because about half the time, no, three quarters of the time, everybody's eyes light up. They go, yeah, okay, that's great. But it, there's a lot of folks that don't all, don't take you up on. They're like, no, I'd rather just because they're managing a budget and they would rather just have a line item in there and not have to accrue and not have to deal with things. But I think where it becomes much more attractive is when you're talking with the business owners, right? The business owners get it and they're like, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I will absolutely do that right? any day of the week because it's only upside. If this thing works out, I'm not... I'm not taking a hit. I'm, it's just upside for me. And if it doesn't work out, then you've reduced my exposure. I think the more that I, I work in the, the fractional world with other fractional executives, uh, the more I see a need for exactly that. You know, we've even messed around with the idea of starting a broader CMO agency just on that philosophy, that philosophy of just what you said, pay the bills with a success fee on the back end. Um, you know, and, and, and ultimately... Um, I think that that's where where marketers um, get it wrong. And, and people say, you know, well, marketing is the first thing to go. When, when the economy goes bad, marketing is the first thing to go. And I'll tell you, I have not found that to be the case in my own life, my own career. I found that if you are not delivering a tangible ROI, you're the first thing to go and you should be the first to go. But if you are delivering a tangible ROI, if you're a trusted advisor, if you are someone that stands between that business owner succeeding in failure, succeeding and failing, which you should be. If you're taking the person's money, you should be. Um, I, I found you're the last thing to go. I think you're right. It, it absolutely is the case. And that's, you've just got to tie it out and and have that linkage and have, it's something that, that people look at and they believe, right? Um, and if, if you've got clear alignment there, it's an easy conversation. I, I loved when, some of these marketing automation tools came out and you could establish that clear linkage and you could establish clear ROI and clear attribution, right? And it created transparency and the people that were performing on the teams, it just shows right immediately. And that's, if you can demonstrate that value and you've got that transparency, it's so much easier. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, I think that that um, in, in a lot of ways, I love those tools because I feel that they restore trust back to our back to the industry, back to the marketing industry. When when people, I remember remember the other week I was talking to a fractional, and we were talking about the idea of. Um, she said, "Well, my my clients don't see me as being crucial." Um, and I said, well, okay, well, tell me what you're doing. And she told me what she was doing. And I said, well, the strategy that you that you just talked about, you know, she was recommending a blog strategy. I said, I don't see how that would drive a return on investment for the client. Their ICP is over here. And that person is making these decisions when they're thinking about buying a blog is an irrelevant strategy. And she says, yes, but it's what I know how to do. And I'm like, okay, so you don't have a clear way to drive ROI for a client. And she said, well, no, not, not unless they need blogs. And, and I'm like, well, 
you know, maybe look at another career. <laughs> and it's where marketers get in trouble. You know, some marketers, they, you know, they, they sell what they've got instead of what the client needs and what will drive results for the clients. Um, and that's why I think there's such a tremendous opportunity in marketing. Oh, I totally agree. Well, one of the conversations that I love the most um, and often turn into the most fruitful is when somebody says, oh, I need, I need you to come do a demand gen campaign or I need, we want to increase awareness or something like that. I'm like, okay, talk to me about the business, right? What's going on? What are your business objectives? What are your strategic goals? What are you trying to do? They're like, well, wait, no, I don't want to talk about that. I just want to tell you, I, I need you to go build this website for me or do this or do that. I'm like, yeah, but that has a purpose, right? In, in, in what you're trying to achieve. And if we can understand what you're trying to achieve, if you want a website or if you want a web page or you want uh, you know, a PR campaign, we'll be glad to do that. Well, absolutely. I'll be glad to serve you. That's what you want. We'll do it. But if I can understand the context in which you're trying to use it, I can develop that for you so much better, right? And and also there may be a way where if you're saying, hey, I want to spend X thousand dollars on PR, right? Say, you know, there may be a much more efficient way to spend that money with a higher return. You know, and in some situations, it's not. PR is exactly what you need to do what you're trying to achieve. but you know, at, at the end of the day, let's have a business conversation and understand your strategic goals and objectives. And then we can talk about how marketing fits in. It's it's no different than if I go to the doctor and say, hey, I want you to prescribe penicillin for me. It's like, what's the first thing he's going to say? Well, whoa, 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 what's what's going on? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not that he can't prescribe penicillin. He absolutely can prescribe penicillin. Right. It's just, is that the right thing in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of business owners are so buried at, at, at all levels that they can't see the forest for the trees anymore. And so one of the things we've started doing is just a, a little bit of a planning exercise where we go back and say, hey, look, I mean, why did you start this business? You know, and I've had this conversation with, um, you know, even those smaller business is, has been my sweet spot in home services. I've also worked with the largest roofing company. I've worked with the largest manufacturing companies. I've worked with Fortune 500s. And even within those companies, um, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? I mean, there's gotta be something that you would enjoy more than being here today at work, whether it's playing with your kids or going to Disneyland or, or doing something else, but why are we doing this? And when it really comes down to it, you know, people want success, they want to create abundance. They want to create opportunities for their family. They want to, uh, you know, they want to make a positive impact, um, you know, but that does all come down to money. It comes down to making money, making profit, creating an ROI. And yet so much of what people wind up doing, especially on the marketing side, doesn't support those goals. And, and they don't lay foundational groundwork. They wind up doing all this tactical stuff, most of which doesn't work because there's no groundwork in place. And so everything is so inefficient. And then they say, well, you know, marketing, it's just a bunch of BS. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of kind of like saying, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's you know, like, like anything else. It's like saying, hey, this, this, uh, this house doesn't keep rain off my head. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't have a roof. Yeah, well, and to your point, right, it, if you've got a finance team that is doing everything with not just spreadsheets, but old accounting sheets and, and green visors, right? It's, it's really hard to do your job and you're going to miss things and those sorts of things. And so it's, you've got to have the right infrastructure and the capabilities in, in order to, to do, in order to succeed and drive that. And I think back to what you were talking about with the, um, the person who said, hey, I write blogs. Well, that that's akin to the doctor saying, I can just identify a dislocated elbow. Yeah. Anybody that comes to me, they've got a dislocated elbow. No, 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 they don't. And 
know this happens in medicine. You know, a surgeon will tell you to do surgery. I mean, often in marketing, it's it's the if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And that's very, very common. I think marketers are good people. I know a lot of them. Um, and I think they're well-meaning people. I think that many of them truly believe if they do SEO, that Google is the answer to everything. But it isn't. And if you don't know who your ideal client is and what they're doing when they're making a buying decision and what's important to them, if you don't know that stuff, then you don't even know what you should be choosing. And if all you're doing is Google and your client is doing something else, of course your money is going to go out the back end. <laughs> it's, it's funny. One of the, the most critical exercises that we try to do with our clients is a, at a minimum, a quick walk down the buyer's journey and identify each of the stages and what goes through their ideal customer profiles buying decision. What do they do? What type of content do they digest at each stage, right? And then what's going to help them advance to the next stage or it, even then opt out, right? Some of your best clients are the ones that recognize you're not a good fit early on, right? If, that's it's, you're not wasting time, resources, right? There's a lot that goes into knowing whether that client is a good fit or not, or that customer is a good fit or not. Um, because if you're if you've got a bad fit, it's just going it, a breakup is coming. It's not it's not a question of if; it's a question of when, right? And the sooner you can do that, it, it, it you know I think back to uh, when my kids started saying, Hey, I want to go on a date or whatever. You know, my advice to them was okay, but you, it's going to end in tears, right? It's one way or the other. It's either going to end in tears because or yes, <laughs> you're married, right? You're and all of that, or it's going to end in tears because it didn't work out, but it will end in tears. Right. Right. And so, Absolutely. yeah, it's it's one of those things. So it, it, just recognize that these relationships with your customers are highly valuable. But the worst thing in the world you can do is align with somebody that you can't serve well. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's why, you know, even as an agency owner or a fractional or a business owner, um, it's so important to turn to turn people away. I think one of the biggest mistakes that the people that do consulting or that agency owners make is taking on any client who can fog a mirror just to pay the bills. And, and that's probably been one of the toughest lessons I've learned the hard way, like everything else, um, is, is how selective you have to be with your clients. It's like you have to be as selective with your clients as you are when you're selecting a, a partner, you know, to be with, like, a, like, a, like somebody to marry, maybe no, not. That's selective, but but truly, I think having really understanding your ICP, that was a real turning point for me in my own life, um, kind of going from taking any client to really understanding who is going to be a healthy client for me, knowing that I'm kind of a weird duck, um, who is going to be a healthy client for me? And I would say that ever since I've, I've gotten really ruthless about getting rid of toxic clients, um, you know, not only has my business continue to thrive and continue to improve, but my personal happiness. And, and, and ultimately you can kind of get back to that waiting list. And it's like, well, if you only take your ideal clients and you can hit the ball out of the park for every single one of them, then you develop this reputation of somebody that can hit the ball out of the park. Now, could I do it for everyone? Heavens right. no, <laughs> but I can do it for my ICP. No, I, I, th I think you're spot on with that. And I, I love that. Okay. Quick, quick pivot for you in terms of this conversation. Uh, you were talking about 2007. We talked a little bit about today and people are saying this economy and things like that. I think you, you've answered the question to a certain extent, but if you had to give people advice regarding the economy today and managing their careers, managing their business, what, what do you do? What are you doing personally to, create a recession-proof or downturn-proof business? Um, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but I actually love downturns. Um, I, I find that for someone like me, I thrive in the downturn because when, when you're in a bull market 
and, and things are good. You can do what I call the bucket in the rain approach. The rain is coming down. You put your bucket out and enough rain falls into your bucket for you to be able to survive. And so many people live like that. You know, they, 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 they can only do it in times of abundance. Um, and and they, they don't do systems, they don't do processes, and they take on any client that can fog a mirror. Um, I, I personally be, believe whether you are self-employed or you're an employee, you're self-employed. I totally agree. And, and, and people who get laid off and they go, poor me, I got laid off and I have no money and I have no plan. It's like, you know what? You're not prepared for this world. I believe that everybody should live like an entrepreneur. And that means you have at least a year's worth of living expenses. You minimize debt. You have a great business network. You prioritize that and you spend time building those relationships. Um, it also understand understanding where you can add value. Truly, it's not about getting a job. It's about creating value for someone else. And I've had people say, well, I'm not interested in creating value for someone else. I'm interested in paying my bills. And I'm like, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, Adam Smith talked about that 250 years ago. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. Hmm. yeah, there's a, it's a little thing called enlightened self-interest, right? If you want to take care of yourself, exactly. take care of someone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, for me, there is no bad economy. There is no drop. There is, there, there are only more and more people coming and saying, hey, I understand you can still make things happen. Whereas other people can't. I also think that when things get bad, business owners have to take a look at their, at their ROIs because they can't just throw money discriminately here, there and everywhere. And, and honestly, I don't think they should ever do that. I, I don't think when the economy is booming we should be indiscriminately throwing money at whatever popular whiz bang has come along. We should really be thinking to ourselves, okay, look, we have these resources to grow them. You know, we have these resources to maximize our opportunity and we are going to create systems, processes, data and accountability that shows us, you know, how we are maximizing the value of our resources. And, and I think if you're doing that, yeah, there are ups and there are downs like there have been in my entire life. But you know what? You learn to take a punch. You learn to get back up. You learn to be resilient and you learn to move on. And I'll tell you, I know plenty of people that are thriving in this economy, including every single one of my clients. I don't have a single client right now that's that's whining or crying or hurting. You know, I was just with one of my clients and he's like, check this out. You know, he, he just bought himself a $120,000 pickup truck, some Dodge Ram TDRX <laughs> or something. I don't know what the heck the thing is, but he was so excited. He had just gone and he paid cash for this in this economy. Um, and, and that makes me happy, to be honest. I love that. I love that. Watching somebody succeed and thrive um, because they're doing the right things in their business. And you know what? If the economy is good, this guy's going to succeed. If the economy is bad, this guy's going to succeed. It's that simple. No, I like it. I like it a lot. That's fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Uh, I'm walking away inspired, and I truly appreciate you sharing, sharing your stories. And <laughs> if there's ever anything I can do for you, please don't help me. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm walking away feeling like I've taken all my clothes off and stepped out onto my front porch. <laughs> Have you heard, uh, do you know who Patrick Lencioni is? I don't, no. So he writes a whole series of books, but he's got a, a consulting group called the, the Table Group. And they've one of the books they wrote is called Getting Naked. And it, it's their approach to how they work with clients. And it's just, they're very transparent, right? It's like, no, this is, we tell you how we work. We tell you what we do. We tell you what we're good at. We tell you what we're bad at. We're not great at everything, right? I really respect that. Um, I think there's real power in in knowing who you are and who yeah. you are. And, and I think that's just, that's one of those things that it's, there's a lot of freedom that comes in that. So, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great to spend some time with you and 
hopefully your listeners go easy on me. And this, this was a lot of fun. So thank you so much. Well, this will be great. Hey, real quick, uh, before we go, how do people find you? Is it fractionalsuccess.com? Um, you know, we're, we're getting ready to launch Fractional Success as a way to give back to the fractional community. Um, there'll be some, some teaching and training. We've launched a high-level networking group called Fractional Elite. Um, but uh, I'm David R. Fox on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to connect with me. And whatever, um, you know, I'm an open networker, so I love it when people just connect, say hello, set up a one-on-one. Um, you know, I believe relationships are truly what makes the world go around. So if anybody wants to connect and have a chat, uh, just David R. Fox on LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me in all my craziness. I love it. David, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. 